This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. Dr. Walter Gilliam joins us in Portland for a discussion on preschool suspension, expulsion, and implicit bias. He is Professor of Child Psychiatry and Psychology at the Yale University Child Study Center and the Director of the Edward Ziegler Center in Child Development and Social Policy. He co-authored the book A Vision for Universal Preschool Education and his groundbreaking study from 2005 called Pre-Kindergartners Left Behind examined expulsion rates and reasons for expulsion in state preschool programs across the country. His scholarly writing addresses early childhood care and education programs, school readiness, and developmental assessment of young children, and he is frequently consulted by decision makers in the U.S. and other countries on issues related to early care and education. Walter, welcome to the Early Link Podcast. Hi, Raphael. It's great to be here. Thanks for thanks for coming all the way from Connecticut hey, to Portland. <laughs> my pleasure. I landed about an hour ago, and the first place I wanted to be was with you. Excellent, excellent. I, you know, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was how you first became interested in studying preschool suspension and expulsion. I, I know there's some background to that, and I would love it if you could share a story or two. Well, that's a great question. Um, well, there is a backstory to it. So I, um, this was back in uh, 2002. A long time ago, I guess, and I was at um, I was at Yale then as a faculty member and doing research, but also supervising child psychiatrists and child psychologists and pediatricians who are learning how to work with young children. And so I was on the other side of one of those two-way mirrors, you know what I'm talking about, where the yeah. action's on the one side and then I'm on the other side and I'm watching, and then I can give them feedback on how well they're working with the young child and then sign off for building purposes. And I couldn't help but notice that many of the children who were being referred to our clinic for an evaluation were being sent to us because they'd been kicked out of a preschool program okay. or expelled from a child care program. Or they were told that if they didn't come to a place like Yale and get an evaluation, that they will be expelled from the program. Okay. And um, and I couldn't help but notice just how many children this this was true for. And I, I didn't know if this was a Connecticut phenomena or this was just something that was happening around the New Haven, Connecticut area. So I decided to take a look at the research on it and found absolutely nothing. And it just so happened that at that same time, I was planning a nationwide survey of preschool teachers, preschool teachers around the nation, all working in state-funded preschool programs, mm-hmm. and thought, well, let's just weave in some additional questions. So we threw some additional questions into the survey. It was a survey that was taking place over the phone. It was about an hour long. We just had a few questions on the expulsion. Um, but the findings were just so staggering to so many people that it, it literally became the study. And that became pre-kindergartners left behind. Right? Is that- yeah, absolutely. Well, at the, and at the time we had um, we had no child left behind legislation, which was the hot topic. Right. So it was a bit of a play on on the on the title. Sure, sure. In terms of the fact that we are leaving kids behind, and we leave them behind before they even get there. Right. You know, for many people, when they think of school, they think of school as beginning in in kindergarten, but not anymore. We have preschool programs for children four years old or three and four years old. And, you know, the the concern here for a phenomena like this of children being expelled from preschool programs is this notion of, of the fact that for many of our kids, they could they can experience a failure before they even get to what most people would consider school. Talk a little bit more about the study because you found some, some fairly significant things related to the expulsion rates for preschoolers that exceeded the expulsion rate. Uh, for kids in K-12 system? By a long shot. Right. What what did, what did those numbers look like? Well, when we got the rates back, we found that 10% of the 
preschool teachers. Now, bear in mind, these are state-funded preschool programs. This is not your typical child care programs. These are your better-resourced early care and education programs that are part of state systems. Yes. Usually ran out of state departments of education or funded through state departments of education. So they have actually more resources to them than most of your most of your regular child care programs. And in these programs, the teachers were telling us, 10% of them, that they had expelled at least one child in the past 12 months. Now, expelled meant permanent, mm-hmm. permanently, totally kicked out of the program. Right. 10% of the teachers said that they had done this, and we knew how many children had been expelled, and we knew how many children were in the classrooms. And so with some simple division, we were able to figure out what the rate was. But then when we had the rate, it was kind of hard to figure out how to communicate that. The rate was 6.7 expulsions per 1,000 children enrolled. Mm-hmm. So it's 6.7. Is that a lot? Right. Is that a little? Right. Or is that like baby bear and it's just right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, what do you do with that? So we thought, well, we need to have something to compare it to. So we thought K-12 through expulsion rate would be the best thing to compare it to. But we couldn't find anything published on the K-12 through expulsion rate except that the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights had conducted surveys on expulsion and suspension K through 12, but they never analyzed the data. Instead, it existed as 16,000 databases, one for every school district in America, on the U.S. Department of Education's website. So we downloaded all 16,000 and wrote our own formulas to figure out what the rates were state by state and nationally. And then when we compared the rate, we found that preschoolers, three- and four-year-old children, were being expelled at a rate more than three times that of grades K-12 through combined Hmm. in the United States. And when you look at it state by state, all but three states have an expulsion rate in preschool that outpaces the expulsion rate K-12. through That's a lot of kids being expelled. You also found that boys were much more likely to be expelled than girls. About four times as likely. Four-year-olds more likely to be expelled than Mm -hmm. three-year-olds. And that African-American children more likely to be expelled and expelled more often than white, Latino, and Asian kids. Tell me how those findings came out and, and what else should we know about that study? Well, in the original study, we were curious about things like uh, what kind of programs are the ones doing the most expulsion, and then also what types of children were the most likely to be expelled. And uh, like you said, we found that in mixed age groups where you have three or four-year-old children together, the older child is more likely to be expelled. And uh, we found that that boys were expelled at about four times the rate of girls, and black children were expelled at about twice the rate of every other Every other demographic of children. And so when you think about it, there's really three expulsion risk factors. You have big, the bigger children, the boys, and the black children, big, black, and boy. Mm -hmm. And the more of those that existed within a single child, the greater the likelihood that that child might be expelled from from the program. But that just tells us about, you know, which children were most at risk. And then there's other factors, too, that have to do with what types of programs were more likely to be the ones doing the expulsion. When we uh, did the pilot study for this, we piloted it in childcare programs in Massachusetts, and we found that one teacher reported expelling six children out of a class of 16 in the course of 12 months. Wow. That's almost half the class. Yeah. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. So the rate's much, much, much higher than what a lot of people would have would have thought, and certainly even more so for, for, for our black children and for our, our boys. We, um, we didn't know what to do and how to understand the, um, the finding about four-year-olds more likely than three-year-olds. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I could have made a guess either way on that. I mm-hmm. could have guessed, well, maybe the bigger child. I could have guessed, well, maybe the younger child who might be more socially immature in the classroom. And so what we did was we pulled together a group of 
preschool teachers similar to the ones in the national study. And we said in a national study, this is what teachers like you said. Why do you think they would say this? And the teachers thought about it in this focus group, and they came back and they said, well, you know, it's one thing if you have a, a child who's this big, you know, and they held their hand about waist high. And they said, it's another thing if you have a child who's this big, and they held it a little bit higher. And so we asked the, 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 the logical follow-up question of, well, why does height matter? Like, how does height factor into who you're going to expel or not expel? Right. And I said, well, if the child is smaller, then the child might be smaller than the other children. But if the child is bigger, then the child might be bigger than some of the other kids in the classroom. And then maybe someone will get hurt. And that was an important clue to us. That, it, that makes It makes a lot of sense. Safety mm-hmm. because the teacher is not just concerned about the singular child. The teacher's has to be concerned about all the children in the classroom. But if you listen really closely to what the teacher is saying, what the teacher is saying is this. It's not the behavior of the child. Right. You could have two children equally aggressive, but the bigger child is going to be the one to be expelled. So it's not really the behavior of the child. It's what we make out of that behavior. It's what we assume might happen as a result of that behavior. And that's when it became clear to us that preschool expulsion isn't really a child outcome. Preschool expulsion is not a child behavior. It's an adult decision that may be based in part on the child's behavior, but there could be other factors, too, that could come into play having to do with how that teacher views that child. So that process leads you to think about looking more closely at how teachers are interacting with the kids in their classrooms and to look at this idea of implicit bias and what what role that plays. Yeah, yeah. And And even before we got to that, we were looking at some of the more regulable factors having to do with programs. We found that teacher-child ratio predicts it. The more children per adult in the classroom, the greater the likelihood that a child's going to be expelled. Uh, We found that teacher job stress, teacher depression, and this is teachers reporting on their own job stress and depression. They're not reporting about children anymore. They're talking about themselves. Uh, Teacher job stress is a strong predictor of the likelihood of a child being expelled, even when all other factors regarding the child are held constant. Mm. Job stress matters. And teacher depression, teachers who screened positive for depression during the survey were expelling at twice the rate of teachers who screened negative for depression. But we also found that when teachers reported having access to somebody who could come into the classroom, that could be called a mental health consultant, could be called a behavioral specialist, different places call these these professionals different things. But if a teacher had access to somebody who could come into the classroom and work with the teacher regarding children's behaviors, it was associated with about a a, a half cut in the likelihood of a teacher being expelling a child. So if they can get those professional supports that they need, uh, there's a direct impact on the students that they're engaging with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in survey after survey, when you when we survey preschool teachers and we say, you know, what would you like the most? What would be the most helpful to you? They consistently say more supports regarding challenging behaviors, more information regarding what to do about a child's challenging behaviors. And it's one of the least likely things for us to ever provide them, mm-hmm. even though they're consistently saying that's the biggest challenge for them. We found absolutely no relationship between teacher job training, teacher education, or teacher experience level and expulsion rates. Teachers with a high school diploma and nothing more expelled at about the same rate as teachers with a master's degree in early childhood education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know what to make of that variable either until we started looking a little bit deeper. And we found out that if a teacher has no more than a high school diploma, and some of our preschool teachers do have no training more than a high school diploma. If a teacher has no more than a high school diploma as their training, chances are 
pretty good that they have zero level of training in how to handle challenging behaviors in the classroom. And if a teacher has a master's degree in early childhood care and education, chances are also pretty good that they have zero training in how to handle challenging behaviors in the classroom. And if that's the case, why would you expect (laughs) any impact? So the education isn't matching up to what teachers need to be effective. Yeah, it's not even matching up to what teachers know and what teachers are crying out loud for. Could you talk a little bit more about your findings around implicit bias and the role that that played? Sure. We, um, when we first found these these findings and I was reporting them out, it, it surprised quite a few people, except it didn't surprise preschool teachers because they knew it was happening. And there were certainly some people it didn't surprise because they might have had a child who had been expelled from a preschool program. Um, but when I was giving these 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 presentations talking about about what the rates were and who's more likely to be expelled, I would get a lot of questions about, well, why? Why is it that our boys are more likely than our girls? Why is it that our black children are more likely than our white and brown children to be expelled? And, and my answer was usually something along the line of, well, that's a very good question, and we need more research to be able to answer that. <laughs> and eventually, I just became completely and wholly unsatisfied with my own answer to that question and wanted to look a little bit deeper into it and to be able to see whether it's possible that things like implicit bias might factor into it. And like I said before, it was pretty clear to us in some of the early findings that it's not just the behavior of the child. It's what the teacher's thinking in the teacher's head that also matters. And if that's the case, that gives room for the bias. Mm-hmm. And what we know about biases are this. We all have them. And just because you're a preschool teacher and just because you love babies and that's what you've devoted your life to doesn't make you non-human. Right. You know, you, right. you, may, you may be doing the, the, the work of a god, but you're, but you're still subject to the same kind of biases that all the rest of us have mm-hmm. as mere mortals. Right. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so then the question becomes, you know, what kind of biases might be coming into the way in which we look at children's behaviors. So we decided that we wanted to do a study on it. And what John? Well, this was the first, as far as we can tell, the first study that's ever been done on implicit bias in preschool classrooms. Uh, we knew that we couldn't just go to preschool teachers and say that implicit biases are the unconscious bias that you have, that you don't know you have. Do you have any? You know, we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't ask it like that. Right. You know? So we needed to have a somewhat sneaky way to be able to get at it. There's an old saying that the eyes don't lie. Mm. And so what we thought we would do is this. We, um, we had a video clip of about six minutes long of preschool children. They were all four years old, sitting at a round table playing with Play-Doh in a preschool classroom. And we told the teachers that we wanted them to look at this video while we track their eye gaze. And we had an an expensive, fancy eye tracker that was attached to the screen that could tell us down to the pixel and down to the one thousandth of a second exactly where the teachers were looking. Mm -hmm. And then we told the teachers, this is a study to see how quickly you can find challenging behaviors or how quickly you can find something that could turn into a behavioral problem. Uh, that the trick to being able to stop behavior problems in a classroom is being able to see when something could turn bad quickly. And so we're interested in how how quickly can you find signs that a misbehavior might get ready to be happening. And so we want you to watch this video. We're going to track your eye gaze. And every time you see something that could turn into a challenging behavior, hit this button on the side. That's what we told them. Mm-hmm. And then there were some parts that we didn't tell them. The parts that we didn't tell them was this. In these videos, no one is going to misbehave because they are all child actors that I've hired 
and sat at a, pre, at a table and told to play with Play-Doh. Right. And so we're really not interested in how quickly you can find misbehaviors because there aren't any to find. What I'm interested in is this. When I lead you to believe that someone is going to misbehave, who do you look at? Right. Who do you look at first? Who do you look at the most? Who do you go back to just because you must have missed something because you didn't see a challenging behavior? Uh, the children in the videos, we had a black boy, a black girl, a white boy, and a white girl. And so when we analyzed the results in terms of where the teachers were looking, we found that teachers look significantly more at the black children, especially the black boy. And what was, what was the difference play. between the black girl and the black boy? What did that look like? Um, much more towards the black boy uh, than the black girl, and then the white children much less than mm -hmm. both of those. Now, at the end of the study, uh, the screen goes blank, and then we show them a picture, the teacher's a picture of the four children that were in the video, and we say, who do you think you looked at the most? Now, we don't need to ask them who they looked at the most. I know down to a thousandth of a second who they were looking at the most. What we were curious of here was, was not just what kind of biases might you have that would lead you to look for misbehaviors with one group of children versus another, but are you aware of it? And then the screen would go blank, and then we would ask them to enter the letter of the child. We were tracking their eye gaze even when we were showing them the pictures of the four children. Mm -hmm. And so really what we were interested in was three questions. One is, where do your biases take your eyes? Two, are you aware of it? And then when the screen goes blank, are you willing to tell me? Right. Because you can't really diffuse a bias bomb unless you know how it's wired. Right. And right. so we needed to know whether this truly was an impl an implicit bias is, is a bias you don't know you have. But I didn't know that they don't know this. Maybe yeah. they think they know this or maybe they think they know something different. And what we found was that the teachers spent more time looking at the black children, especially the black boy, but they thought they were looking more at boys, black and white, right. especially the black boy. Okay. Either way, the black boy ends up at the short end of the stick. But the underlying bias that we found was a race-oriented bias mm -hmm. that the teachers think they have a gender-oriented bias. Interesting. Has there been follow-up to that study since since those results came out? Uh, nothing nothing specifically on, on on using eye tracking in that kind of a way, mm -hmm. although we're, we're, we're looking at, at some ways to be able to do some follow-up studies to try to tease out some additional things on this. It's worth noting, too, that, that the finding that I just described was true for, for across all the groups of, of teachers that we had in the study. It was true for our white teachers, and it was true for our black teachers, too, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. our teachers of color also spend more time looking at black children, especially black boys, when they're led to believe that somebody's going to misbehave. And so the bias that we're talking about here is not a bias that seems to be specific to the race of the teacher. Uh, regardless of the race of the teacher, there's a greater expectation that black children are going to misbehave. And we can still say that today, that black four-year-old boys are at greatest risk of preschool expulsion. Yeah, they were at greatest risk when we did that study that we released back in 2005. But then the U.S. Department of Education did a study on it in 2014 and again in 2016 and found actually even greater disparities. Uh, we found a twofold increase for black children in terms of likelihood to be expelled. The U.S. Department of Education was reporting a 3.6 times greater likelihood for black children. So yeah, I think it, it clearly does still exist. And this is something when we, we think about, I mean, it's, it is difficult to imagine a young child being suspended or being expelled to be put in that situation. And this is something that uh, you're talking about trends that are happening in every state all over the country. 
Is that right? How widespread is this issue? Well, in the original study that we did, um, like I said before, all but three states expel children in preschool at a greater rate than they expel children K through 12. And in the states that, that didn't, it was a close call. You know, so the, the rates are certainly much higher for preschoolers, and it's true across pretty much all the states that we've studied. In the original study, we were studying 40 states, mm -hmm. and that's because 40 states had state-funded pre-K programs. The other 10 states didn't have one, right. and so we, we weren't studying them in that. But there's no reason to believe that those other 10 states wouldn't behave the same as the other 40. Yeah, and are there some underlying factors that you we know about human behavior that can help describe why this happens? Sure. I mean, there's been a, a few studies that have been done on, on bias and how biases are formed. Studying bias is an interesting thing. It, you know, we've, we've long known that people have biases and bias regarding race. Uh, it's been written about for a long time, but it's not been actually seriously studied in like the past three to five years. You know, but in the research that's been done in the past three to five years, the findings are, are pretty clear. Um, there was a study that was done by a man named Russell Skibb at Indiana University where he had, he had um, school records of children in elementary school. And in these school records, there was information about the, the age and the, and the race and um, gender of the child and information about what the child did wrong. What was the behavioral infraction? What was the misbehavior? And then there was information about when, what happened as a result of this. Did the child go to the principal's office? Did the child get suspended? In-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, expulsion. And what he did was he masked over all the data. You couldn't read it, except for just the description of the behavior. What did the child do? And then had teachers rate how severe is that? How bad is that? And then unmasked the rest of the variables and then ran the analyses and found that even when you control for how severe the behavior problem is, or in other words, even when the behavior problem is the same level of severity, the black child as opposed to the white child is more likely to be sent to the principal's office, more likely to be suspended, more likely to be expelled. Mm -hmm. And again, even when the behaviors are identical. There was another study done by a man named Philip Goff, and he was, um, he was using vignettes. These are stories about a child who may or may not have done the bad deed, may or may not have broken the vase, may or may not have lost the ball. You read the story and you can't really tell. Maybe the child did it. Maybe the child didn't do it. And then you had to rate how guilty do you think the child is. Do you think he did it? Do you think she did it? And then unbeknownst to the adults who were in the study, they would pair different pictures of children to different stories. And the pictures... The children were all between the ages of 10 and 17 years old, and some of the times they'd put a white boy, and sometimes they'd put a white girl or a black boy or a black girl with the, with the story. And what they found was that any time they showed a story and they put a picture of a black boy with it, the guilty ratings went up. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, I mean, what's important about this is there's no extenuating circumstances because there's no backstory to these children because these are just made up Stories. Made up stories on a piece just, of paper. Absolutely. Yeah. And so even when there's no extenuating circumstance that you could blame it on or anything else like that, just seeing a picture of a black child made people think that the child was more likely to have done it, more likely to have been guilty. Can you talk about the experience of expulsion from a child's point of view? What do we what do we know about the impact on children? What what that experience has, the impact? 
on a child who gets expelled and maybe gets expelled more than once? That's a, I'm, I'm going to thank you for that question because it's easy to have these conversations about children and only look at it from the adult's perspective and then not try to even entertain the notion of what it might feel like from the child's perspective. I think it's important to remember that when we're talking about preschoolers, these are three- and four-year-old babies. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're really young. I mean, like I know technically a baby means about, you know, zero to 18 months or zero to two years, you know. But in my book, if, if you've only been talking for a year and you've only been able to go potty in the bathroom for about a year or two, you're a baby. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are yeah. really young kids. Young and vulnerable and, and kids who need trusting relationships with the adults in their lives. Yeah. Absolutely. And they need to feel that those relationships are permanent or at least as permanent as a three- or a four-year-old can understand, and not to feel that I can do something so bad that everybody that I know, that I have a relationship with, all of these adults and all of my classmates could just vanish. You know, that's a, that's a scary thing for that child, but it's also a scary thing for the other children in the classroom, mm-hmm. that the adults in this room aren't strong enough to protect me and to keep things safe in the classroom without making children vanish if we do the wrong thing. Right. You know, and they're not going to understand, you know, what an expulsion means. They just understand that they had a relationship with this friend, and now all of a sudden, he's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. Or all of a sudden, she's not there anymore. And from this child's perspective, you know, what what does that mean? And from the parent's perspective, too, you know, that you're telling me that, that my child isn't a good fit for school, and he's not even made it to school yet. Right. He's only in three years old, yeah. you know, and so I, I think, I think there's, that's an awful lot for us to, to wrap our head around as adults. You know, we know from a lot of research that early care and education programs, when they're done at a high level of quality, can have a significant, important, lasting, meaningful impact in the lives of children. But early care and education is not a single-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. If we do it well, we can have tremendous impact for the good for lots of kids. But if we do it poorly, we can hurt a lot of kids. And the last thing that we want early care and education to be is an opportunity for children to experience failure at an even younger age. Right. To see the effects of bias at an even younger age. You know, we we, we need to make sure that these programs are are programs that are designed to give kids opportunities, not to show them how fragile their opportunity is at an even younger age. In 2015, Oregon removed zero-tolerance policies in schools, uh, focusing on children under the age of 12, So, but primarily uh, still in the K-12 system. That legislation doesn't address preschool, in part because preschool programs remain uh, largely disconnected from K-12 if you think about Oregon and what we could do as a state, what, what could happen at the policy level to, to address that? Well, we need to quit forgetting about preschool. You know, we're putting money into it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that it's important enough to fund. We need to be thinking about it as an important policy issue, too. When I talk to decision makers about early care and education, they largely call it school readiness. These are school readiness programs. So conceptually, they are linking these preschool programs to school. Mm-hmm. They are about helping kids get ready for school. And if we just focus on what's happening in our K-12 through system, but we avoid thinking about what's happening in our preschool programs, then how effective can we possibly be at 
having these programs be a school readying force. Uh, we, we need to be very cognizant of what's going on in our early care and education programs. Uh, cognizant of the fact, too, that when you're talking about these preschool teachers, that on average across the nation, we're talking about teachers who work more hours in many cases than a kindergarten teacher, but they work it for less than half the pay. And in many cases, they're serving children who are mostly at risk because in many states, Oregon included, preschool programs are targeted towards highly financially at risk children. Mm -hmm. And the teachers are financially at risk too. Right. Because that's where we're putting those teachers because we pay them so poorly. Mm -hmm. And then the teachers have levels of job stress and depression and all sorts of things, and it can impact their job. Uh, One of the things that I've learned studying early care and education for the past 20, 25 years is this. How we treat our preschool teachers is how we treat our babies. How we regard our preschool teachers is how we regard our babies. Mm -hmm. And if we don't think much about our preschool teachers, that means we're not thinking much about our babies. Some other states are making movement in this area. They're, they're paying, they're figuring out how to pay their teachers better. They're better connecting preschool to K-5 or K-12. Are there some examples you can point to? Yeah. uh, North Carolina for a long time has focused on um, trying to increase pay equity, but also trying to create loan forgiveness programs so that when people take out a student loan and they become a preschool teacher, that they can get a loan forgiveness for that. It's a, it's a challenging thing to try to work out the pay equity element because a lot for a lot of decision makers they feel it's a bit of a catch-22 why should i pay these teachers when in the same as a kindergarten teacher when in many cases they might not have the same level of credential Mm -hmm. but at the same time if you pay them less than half of the kindergarten teacher you're not going to get a teacher with the same level of credential yeah you know and so that becomes a bit of a of a of a of a sticky wicket in terms of like how do you how do you increase how do you increase the um, the qualifications of the of the teachers? Uh, Head Start for a long time was trying to creep up the educational level requirement of teachers, but they weren't creeping up the pay along with it. And the problem that that creates is a is a hiring problem for the directors. Eventually, you get to the point to where the directors now must hire somebody with a upper level credential, like a bachelor's degree or something like that, but they must pay them at half the rate mm-hmm. that they would get if they were in K through 12. Right. So in other words, the position we're putting the hirers in, the directors in, is one of them having to hire whoever's got the right degree and is willing to work for that r- level, which could also mean whoever has the right degree that no one else will hire. Right. You know, and so that that becomes a big, a big part of the challenge, too. I think what we need to do is we need to realize that K-12 through is fairly well subsidized by the government. Preschool is not. Right. Even higher education is subsidized by the government. These are public schools. They get public money to help support them. In many cases, unless it's a program specifically for low-income children, there's no public subsidy going into this, or the public subsidy is at such a low rate per child that they can't afford to pay the teachers a decent level of pay. But the problem is even greater than that. What we what we do is, you know, when we combine it with what we were talking about before about providing teachers with supports, what we're doing is we're paying teachers terribly, and then we don't even give them supports. You know, we need to we need to decide we're going to do at least one of those two things. If we're right. going to pay you that bad, then we're going to give you the supports that you need. What about at the federal level? Is there anything uh, developing now or, or 
something that you'd like to point to um, that can impact the this dynamic, this teacher and student dynamic at the preschool level? I know that at the federal level, there's been a lot of effort to better align child care and Head Start, and especially um, early Head Start. Early Head Start is Head Start for children prenatal up to uh, three years old. And Head Start has, has a, a much higher proportion of its funds earmarked towards teacher training and teacher supports than child care does. Child care for a long time only had 4% of its total allocation set aside for quality enhancements or things to make the program better. And the recent reauthorization of the Child Care Development Block Grant, that's increased up to 9 to 12%, uh, but it's still much less than Head Start. And so the federal government created a program called the Early Head Start Child Care Partnership as a way to form better partnerships between Early Head Start and child care programs so that the quality enhancement resources that Head Start had at its, at its disposal could be used in the child care programs. That's a great idea. And as a matter of fact, I think anything that we can do to break down some of the silos within the early care and education field, the better. It's a very fragmented system. And as a result, the fact that we underfund it is compounded by the fact that the fragmentation itself creates unnecessary duplication of resource need. You know, we have to have different monitoring systems for different types of pre-K systems and child care programs that are out there and different types of systems for creating uh, teacher training for different kinds of systems. Uh, we have child care and subsidized child care. We have state-funded pre-K programs. We have Head Start programs. We have private programs that are subcontracted into state-funded pre-K systems. We have Title I preschool programs that are funded through the public schools. Mm -hmm. This is a crazy mess, really, yeah. <laughs> of different types of funding streams. <laughs> and, and in the process of creating this, we've basically fragmented our babies. We've fragmented our children into different types of funding systems. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. There's a whole history behind why that's the case and why that's here. But the, the, the net result of it, basically, is you have different types of of agencies at the federal level that fund early care and education, and those different agencies get replicated at the state level because the money passes from the feds down to the states and to the states down to the local programs. And in many cases, in order to run a program, you have to be able to blend and braid those fundings from multiple sources. And that's complicated yeah. because the rules are not written in a way to make that easy to do. Right. And right. so as a result, we end up wasting a lot of resources just on monitoring different funding streams rather than putting that together for these people at the federal level. Your uh, research has been widely covered in national media. What would you say has been the most exciting or surprising consequences of, of that media coverage? Well, I learned a long time ago that uh, you can't get people interested in solving a problem they've never heard of. And if I want people to address a problem, I need to sell them the problem before they're in the market to purchase the solution. And so for a long time, we were trying to encourage states to uh, provide teachers more supports in the form of early childhood mental health consultation or behavioral consultants, people who could come into the classroom, work with the teacher, and provide the teacher supports mm -hmm. regarding children's social-emotional development. 
Um, but it was a hard sell because we would, I would talk to decision makers about this and they would say things like, well, if the child is misbehaving, why not tell him to be quiet? You know, basically <laughs> showing us that they've never been in a preschool classroom before and don't really know much about what they're talking about. <laughs> and so it became necessary for us to be able to publicize the expulsion issue. Right. Because some of the times, some of the times you can't get the coal operator to do anything different until you show the coal mine operator the dead canaries. Mm-hmm. And so the preschool expulsion issue became the dead canaries. It became the evidence of the fact that we are failing our children's social emotional development because we have teachers who are struggling with this and we don't provide them the supports that they need in order to succeed. And so when we did publicize this, we certainly got bit of traction in, in, in quite a few states. But then when we were able to weave some language into the child care development block grant that required states to have a policy on preschool expulsion and suspension in order for them to get their child care subsidy money, that's when the real movement happened. Right. Because then we tied that issue to their funding. In the past two to three years, since the states had to be writing their policies on this, we now have 26 states that have passed legislation or meaningful regulatory change, either banning preschool expulsion and suspensions or creating services that would be able to prevent the likelihood of a child being expelled or both. Okay. We have 15 states now that, uh, that outright ban preschool expulsion and suspension and say that it's in against the policy to be able to do that, in many cases through legislation, in some cases regulatory. Um, Ohio puts, I think, a little over $9 million a year into a warm line that any preschool teacher in the state can call, and then a mental health consultant would be dispatched immediately to their classroom. That's similar to what we do in Connecticut, but of course Ohio is a much larger state than than Connecticut is. Connecticut's about the size of one of their counties, or or one of a Oregon's counties, I suppose, yeah, exactly. too. Exactly. Uh, in Connecticut, we have one of these warm lines, and um, and we provide mental health consultants, and we've conducted statewide random control trials, randomly assigning classrooms to either get the consultant immediately or they have to wait three months. And then we evaluate the effects of having that consultant for the first three months and hmm. found a significant decrease in the types of challenging behaviors that lead to an expulsion just by having that consultant in the classroom. We then took a look at how much that consultant cost per child, and then we compared it to just about anything else that you could possibly do instead. You could maybe expel the child, in which case the child's going to be back in preschool probably for another year someplace else. Right. You could put the child in an early childhood special ed program. That costs significantly more money. You could refer to the child for outpatient psychotherapy. And when we compared the cost of having a mental health consultant in the classroom to prevent these challenging behaviors in the first place to anything else that we do, it's staggering how much cheaper this is. Mm. It's more effective and it's cheaper. Basically, what we decided was in Connecticut is instead of us expelling our preschoolers out of programs and into psychotherapy clinics, why don't we expel the psychotherapists out of their clinics and into preschool programs? kick the therapists out of their clinics and put them in the preschool programs. Put them in the environment where they're they're truly needed, right? Absolutely, and see if you can prevent it. And in fact, we can. And so one of the things that's the most exciting to me, even more than the rate at which we're now banning preschool expulsions and suspensions, is that many states are now investing money in providing teachers the supports that they need so that they can choose something other than expelling a child. Again, 
coming back to putting resources in the hands of the teachers so they can be effective. Absolutely. To a large degree, that's that's how I see my job. I want I want to help make the world a better place for kids and families. But I don't work directly with children. But fortunately, there's a lot of great people out there who are doing God's work, trying to put good into the world through helping children and families. But the rules are written in a way to make it unlikely for them to win. So my job is to try to change the rules so that the good guys can win more often. Some recent reporting and research uh, has said that there's not much evidence that starting education early makes any difference for children. Uh, And what there is evidence for is that a safe daycare and a stable home environment does make a big difference, which childcare enables, and therefore producing lasting effects. What are your views on that? Well, we've actually known that for a long time. In a way, we, we, we know that just providing education earlier doesn't necessarily give you the results that you want. But what we need to be advocating for is not just providing education earlier. We need to be advocating for providing better quality education earlier. Um, if you provide children access to, to poorly resourced, poor quality educational experiences at an even younger age, who in their right mind would possibly expect that that's going to help any child? It's not going to help anybody. As a matter of fact, it could hurt children. But unfortunately, what we do in a lot of states is we rely on research conducted on extremely high-quality preschool programs, and then we use that research to advocate for these programs to exist for children and families. And then when no one's paying attention we do a bait and switch and we provide a level of service that's nowhere near the quality of what was actually being studied in that original study they gave us the data. Mm-hmm, right. Um, in some of the original research that was being done, these preschool teachers all had bachelor's degrees or master's degrees in early care and education. They were implementing research-based curricula. In the Perry Preschool Study, that's the granddaddy of all of these preschool studies, uh, it was only a half-day program. It was four days a week in the classroom. And the reason it was four days a week in the classroom was because on the fifth day, the teachers all did home visits. Oh. They went into the children's homes. I didn't know that about the Perry study. Yeah, Yeah. it was a huge, major, important part of the preschool program. But then in the the, um, 90s, uh, when uh, welfare-to-work legislation was passed, uh, there was a desire to make these programs more like simple child care in order for parents to be able to go back to work. And so if you're at home in a home visit, you're not at work. And so the home visits got gutted out. Okay. And so when you gut all the quality and all the good stuff out of early care and education, who would possibly expect that you're going to get those same kind of impacts? You know, it's not just about providing a program to children. It's providing a good program for children. And we know that a big part of that good program is a solid relationship between the teacher and that parent. Say more about the parent role, because I know that in early care and education in particular, sometimes I think people think about a preschool system or a program as a place for parents just to bring their kids, almost a way of taking them out of the family. But we know that they're most effective when parents are deeply involved in what's happening in their child's early education. Can you talk more about the parent role in this? Absolutely. You know, preschool programs don't raise children. Parents raise children. Families raise children. The preschool program is there to provide a support to the parent. The parents were there for that child before that child ever went to preschool. The parents are going to be there for that child after preschool is over. 
you know, and a good preschool teacher realizes that my job is not to supplant that parent. My job is to support that parent, that nothing that happens in this classroom can ever possibly be enough unless the parent also understands how to do it at home. And that I can't be the expert on every single child in my classroom unless I rely on the parent to help me because they're the expert about their child. Teachers may be experts about children, but the parent is the expert about their particular child. Let me tell you a story, Raphael. I think you might, you might enjoy I this. I would love to hear it. Yeah, so I, uh, I was consulting to a preschool classroom. This was a long time ago when I had more time to actually be actually in the classrooms and, and working with teachers directly. And uh, this was in an infant-toddler classroom. And this one classroom, there was this one child who was about 17 months old and not yet walking. And the teachers were concerned. The parent was concerned. Everybody was concerned about this this child. And we didn't find any medical reason to explain why the child wasn't yet walking or not. But people were still, you know, worried. You know, is he going to start walking soon? We want him to start walking soon. And and uh, one day, uh, he took his first steps in this infant toddler child care program. And the teachers were there to see it. And I was there, you know, after this had happened, and the teachers were all just excited as can be. I mean, they were just lit up, their huge smiles, and they were just delighted and, um, and just so excited because they were able to see that he took his first steps, and they, and they, were, they were relieved by this. And so I said, well, so what are you going to say to his mom when you see him, his mom later today? And she goes, oh, we're going we're gonna to tell her. Watch him real close for the next few days. I think he's about ready to take his first steps. <laughs> That's what we need in our early care and education programs. Teachers who realize that they're doing something important and meaningful for all these children, but if they do it at the expense of the parent-child relationship, then they've lost the battle. Their job is to support these parents. I'll tell you something else, too. I've been studying children being expelled from preschool programs now for over 15 years, and I've seen and heard of a lot of cases. I, you know, Children expelled for this reason or that reason or under these circumstances or those circumstances. But I'll tell, you a, I'll tell you a story I've never heard. I've never heard of a child expelled from a preschool program when the teacher and the parents knew and liked each other. Oh. Never heard of that. Not even once. That relationship is incredibly important, you know. And the home visits were important, too, when we had them. Mm-hmm. You know, when a, when a preschool teacher comes into the child's home and they're with the parent, uh, it's an opportunity for the preschool teacher to get to know the parent, the parent to get to know the preschool teacher. But it's also, it's also an, an opportunity for the child to be able to see that happening. I get asked from time to time by, by parents, you know, questions like, my child's getting ready to go to kindergarten for the first time, and, and, I'm, and I'm concerned that my child's going to be worried. Uh, what can I do to help relieve my child's anxiety about going to kindergarten for the first time? You know, and I'll talk to the parent, and I'll say, well, are you going to have to put your daughter on a bus? And she says, oh, yeah, the bus driver's going to come, and I'm going to put her on the bus, and it's going to be really hard for my child you know, or I think that it's going to be hard, you know, what can I do to help make that easier? And I, and, you know, usually my answer is, well, do you know that bus driver? Do you like the bus driver? Do you know the kindergarten teacher? Do you like the, do you trust that kindergarten teacher? Because the child is going to take their cues off of that parent. Because when the parent's saying, I'm concerned and worried that my child is going to be scared, they're probably telling me that they are scared. Right. They're scared to let their child go 
And when you're talking about preschool children, it can be a very scary thing for parents to drop their child off. And the child will pick that up. If I have a baby in my arms, and maybe that child is, you know, eight months old, could be 18 months old, and this is my this is my daughter, and we see we see you, Raphael, and I know you, but my 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 daughter hasn't met you yet, you know, and 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 my daughter's in my arm, and I I I, I see you, and my daughter sees you, she'll look at you, and you're a stranger, she hasn't seen you before. What will she do when she sees you? She's going to turn around and she's going to look at me. She's going to see how you react. Absolutely. And reflect that. Absolutely. She's going to borrow my feelings. And that's what babies do. You know, babies are born. They don't know what's safe and what's not safe. They borrow that knowledge from us. And they're really good at it. And when we have opportunities for parents and teachers to get to know each other, especially when the baby can see it, that's gold. That, that's what sets up the good relationship to happen in order for that child to feel comfortable enough in that setting in order to learn. Because if the child's not comfortable in the setting, the child's not going to be able to learn much. Right. They need to feel safe. Right. They need to feel secure. But they don't know whether you're a safe person or not. They'll learn that from how you interact with their parent. And that's why this parent involvement is incredibly important. It shouldn't... You know, as a matter of fact, I, I think we do it a disservice when we say parent involvement. It's not really parent involvement. It's a partnership. Right. You know, right. when you're a parent and you put your child in child care, you are allowing someone to enter into your family as another person who provides care for your child. That's incredible. That's a significant role for a young Absolutely. child. Thank you for coming into the CI offices today. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I'm glad we could do it in person here in Portland. Oh, thank you so much, Raphael, and thank you for what you do. Uh, you're, you're doing a, an incredibly important thing by describing what it's like to be in a preschool classroom and by being a, a, a communication person for this field. Uh, we can't get this field where we need it to be if people can't understand what's happening, and you're the mouthpiece for an entire field, and you're the mouthpiece for a whole hope for our babies. And so thank you for what you do. Much appreciated. Thank you. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. If you have a moment, please subscribe to our podcast. We've just recently been added to Spotify, and you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find episodes on our website at childinst.org.